Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, my guest today is Leah Greenfield. I hope I said that right, uh, who has written several books on the topic of nationalism. And I've always, like I always begin with in the intro of the podcast, is uh, how, how did you get interested in nationalism as a field of study? Um, I lived uh, uh, in a number of countries for long periods of time. And uh, when I came to the United States at the age of 28, I uh, noticed um, a great difference from uh, the uh, conception of uh, of, uh, nationalism in the other countries I lived in. But I also started to work on uh, um, on the concept of charisma in uh, Weber, and this somehow led me to German nationalism. Ooh. And um, uh, <clears throat> and so I uh, started reading about German nationalism, and then realized that it was a very peculiar kind of nationalism, very different, for example, from French nationalism and very different from American nationalism. And so I uh, became interested. Uh, I thought like most people do think at that time that nationalism is everywhere the same, that there is a uniform phenomenon kind of natural to humanity and it is everywhere the same. And I discovered that it was not at all the same. And so I decided to do a comparative study. And this led to my first book on nationalism, Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity. And you actually said this because I, and I think many like me think that it's an ideology. You said this before the recording, which was, Honestly, honestly, quite surprising to me. So, but it's not an ideology. So, what is nationalism exactly? Because if it's not an ideology, what is it? Nationalism is uh, primarily, in the first place, a form of consciousness. This is the way in which we imagine reality. And which, as a result of that, uh, we use to construct reality. So you can say that this is the nationalism is the cultural framework 
of modernity, of modern society. All of us are in fact nationalists, whether we are aware of that or not. We are all nationalists because this is the lens through which we see reality. Now, as a form of consciousness, nationalism is very different from other forms of consciousness. For example, it is very different from the religious form of consciousness that it replaced. In the religious form of consciousness, <clears throat> the focus of our thinking, of our feeling, of our existential experience was transcendental. The most important things for us were out of this world. They were not secular. It was God and our relationship with God and the eternal life, whether good or very bad, after death in this world. Nationalism moved our focus onto this world. So it is a fundamentally secular form of consciousness. Is there a difference between patriotism and patriotism and nationalism? Uh, no, there is absolutely no difference between patriotism and nationalism. Uh, <coughs> usually we call our own nationalism patriotism and uh, we call the patriotism of other people especially those with whom we disagree we call it nationalism you see but no in fact there is not much difference one should understand that nationalism really much broader concept than patriotism because patriotism really uh, implies specifically the nationalist sentiment. Mm. Sentiment of the love of one's nation. But nationalism is much broader. It implies not only the sentiment, the emotion, but it implies the very mode of thinking, the very image of reality of which patriotism is a reflection. And what is this image of reality? This image of reality is that this world is meaningful in its own right and is the source of law and values. Not God is the source of law and values, but this world. And this world is naturally divided. This is, the, uh, this is the image of nationalism. This world is naturally divided into sovereign communities of equal members, which is called nations. You see? Yeah. 
Now, uh, when you think that those are sovereign communities of equal members, you understand that nationalism presupposes democracy. Nationalism also. is the very basis of our democratic values, our democratic institutions, and our democratic societies. Mm. So, uh, yes, you want to ask something? No, no, else? no, no, keep going, keep going. So, before nationalism, nationalism emerged in the yeah. 16th century. So I actually wanted, I wanted, actually wanted to, that's what I wanted recently. to ask you about, but because. You know, as history has, if you ever read a history book before the 16th century, like you said, people like people, historians love to point out that the idea of a country and nationalism wasn't a thing until the 16th century. So, what was like you were about to explain? What was it like in before nationalism? How who, how did you feel? Like so did it did it? Hold on, hold on one second there. So did. Did it, uh, you know, matter which empire you belong to, or did it just matter what? Didn't it matter at all if you belong to, the, let's say, the Holy Roman Empire, the to France or Germany or Italy, where, wherever, whichever empire, it just didn't matter if you were a peasant or what was no, it like? It didn't, it didn't matter much uh, because uh, you see, what mattered was how you uh, how you uh, behave. Uh, uh, in regard to your God, because the most important thing, the most important considerations was whether you're going to heaven or to hell after, uh, after you die. It, mm -hmm. This life altogether was not very important. What was important is the preparation for the afterlife. You see, so it really didn't didn't matter. One's identity was the identity of a Christian, you know, mm. and uh, I mean, I'm talking about those that society with, where it was replaced by nationalism, which was England. This happened at first in England. And um, so it was one's identity as a Christian and then one's identity within the society of orders. So there, because it was the societies were imagined as created by God's providence. And by God's providence, they were created uh, in the form of three orders. The most powerful order was the order of nobility, which was basically a warrior, a warrior order that whose function was to protect the Christian church. Then there was the order of clergy. And their order, their function was to mediate between the mortals and God. And finally, there was a huge order, the majority of every society which was the order of 
working people, peasants, and their function was basically to serve those two upper orders. Yeah, I was reading somewhere, uh, and I don't remember the book's name. I think it was the Age of Faith by Will Durant, but I don't, I don't remember. But when it came to the peasants, let's say in England, it didn't matter. It wasn't like England, the country. It just matter if you were from Nottingham, for example. You were, as far as they were concerned, they were from Nottingham. They didn't belong to England, the country, or Great Britain, if it, if that right. was a thing. They was yes, just exactly. they are from the city of Nottingham. You are from the city of Manchester. That's where you belong. It's not like I'm from England, the country that 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 in the team didn't exist. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is this is how it was. And those orders, they were mutually exclusive. That is, especially the, the order of the nobility and the order of the peasants. You couldn't move from one to the other. They were like different species, like different animal species. And it was believed that even they differed in the very nature of their blood. So they couldn't mix at all. The blood of the uh, nobility was blue, it was believed so, and the blood of the peasantry was red. So it wasn't possible to, uh, let's say, be born a peasant. It, it was inconceivable to be born a peasant and then rise to the order of the nobility was as inconceivable as to be born a chicken and then rise to become a horse mm. you see it was completely inconceivable so um of course there was no conception of equality between those different strata and they had completely different rights their lives had completely different value you understand yeah a serf was born to be a serf and a noble was exactly. born to rule. Exactly, this is how it was. And uh, obviously, the, uh, the, the entire community was not sovereign. Only the king was sovereign. The, the first among nobles was sovereign. And this sovereignty was God-given. So the desires of the majority, uh, their interests, clearly had no meaning and no importance. And this became very different when nationalism replaced this uh, feudal and religious consciousness. So we owe our values of equality of individual freedom, which is very much connected to equality, and of popular sovereignty. We owe all those values to nationalism. Hmm. Now, uh, to this, the emergence of this form of consciousness. Now, why did it emerge? It emerged in England because of an historical accident. And the historical accident was the Wars of the Roses hmm. in the later half of the 15th century. 
during those very protracted conflicts, several decades, the debility, the feudal aristocracy of England that ruled the country before that, including the royal family of Plantagenets, were physically destroyed. So what happened was that a new dynasty very flimsily related to Plantagenets, the Tudors came to power and they needed an aristocracy to rule, but there was no aristocracy physically, they were exterminated. So there started a period, a very protracted period of upward mobility from the red-blooded people to, right. to the aristocracy, which was supposed to be blue-blooded. So those red-blooded people who became new aristocrats, they knew that their blood was red. And they knew that they occupied now positions which only the blue-blooded people could occupy. So it was a very good experience for them, but it made no sense. And they had to rationalize it. That is to make it both make sense and legitimate, understand? And it was because of this need to rationalize this extraordinary experience, extraordinary and within the previous consciousness, inconceivable experience of upward mobility, that the concept of the nation emerged. How quickly now, did this spread that to the, throughout the lands? How quickly did it develop? Well, first of all, let's understand what actually happened. The word people at that time and all those new aristocrats were members of the people. The word people at that time meant plebs, rebel, you know, the scum of the earth, mm. the lower classes, nobody respected them. They were not an object of respect. And the word nation at that time meant an elite, a very tiny elite of representatives of cultural and political authority. You see? Yeah. So what happened? Somehow the two concepts were combined and somebody in the very beginning of the 16th century one of those new aristocrats trying to explain to himself his own and his peers extraordinary experience concluded that the english people is a nation 
So it weighted, you know, the concept of people and nation. Yeah. And symbolically elevated the rebel to the position and dignity of the elite. Understand? Mm -hmm. And this is why nationalism. This is a redefinition of the people, common people, as the elite. Right. Those who decide on the cultural and political values of the community. And this is how we have this idea of the nation as a sovereign community of fundamentally equal members. When you first heard the term nationalist that as a, as a term, when does the word first start to be used? Uh, the word started to be used later, but the word nation, the concept of the nation was first defined in the first so-called Renaissance English Latin dictionary. The dictionary of Thomas Eliot published in 1538. So this is the first time we have this complete redefinition of those concepts and the appearance of the modern concept of nation and uh, the modern concept of people and with this, the modern concept of country and of patriotism and you know all the related things that uh, that we are talking about when we talk about nationalism. Mm. Now, nationalism is simply the collective noun referring to thinking related to this vision of the nation. So thinking, to feeling, to behavior related to this concept of the nation, this vision of the nation. Right. And it first appeared when nationalism moved to France, when it was imported into France. How did that happen? How did, when did we see yeah. that? Nationalism yeah. imported yeah, from well, you see, Europe, uh, England, England to the rest of England Europe. England was England was the only nation in the world for about two centuries, from the 16th to the 18th centuries. But the English, whose consciousness this was, they believed that the entire world is composed of nations because this was their consciousness. Now, because of nationalism, and this is what uh, I describe in my uh, second book of the trilogy, The Spirit of Capitalism, Nationalism and Economic Growth, because of nationalism, uh, which is a very competitive consciousness, you see, because people connect their dignity 
nationalism implies dignity of individual identity. If one, if a member of a community is equal to all the other members of the community, including the most powerful, right? Then this is a very dignified identity. And this distinguishes national identity from all the other uh, identities, from uh, identities within every other form of consciousness. So because their own dignity derives from membership in the nation, nationals, that is members of the nation, mm -hmm. become naturally and exceptionally strongly committed to the dignity of the nation as a whole. So they become very strongly committed to the international prestige, the standing of their community among others. So having acquired national consciousness, the English became extremely competitive. And as a result, very quickly, out of from from a backward poor relatively unimportant country vis-a-vis -vis its continental neighbors such as france spain etc they skyrocketed in prestige and became the most powerful country, economically, militarily, and culturally. But doesn't nationalism, and, and this might be a stupid question, but doesn't nationalism kind of go against colonialism in a sense? Because if they, if England believe that everyone should is national, and they say when they occupied India, shouldn't they feel? Isn't that kind of going against nationalism in a sense, colonialism? If I, if it's just, well, they, they were extremely competitive. You see, they were extremely competitive, uh, and uh, they believed that all the others were competing against them. You see, mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so they wanted to uh, be superior to all the others, so that those others would not outcompete them. It's not that they respected anyone's, it, 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 was, one, it was the desire for their own dignity. And right. um, now, uh, so the, the very interesting thing is that then everyone uh, started because suddenly the position of England vis-a-vis -vis all the others changed, everyone started imitating England. And so throughout the 18th century, uh, nationalism started spreading, first of all, to France, because they wanted to understand why England is suddenly so powerful and they understood that it is connected to nationalism and uh, understand yeah and it was they the French the French who invented the term nationalism 
and they very explicitly told themselves, we have to have nationalism. We Is also it? have to have nationalism. At the same time, nationalism also spread to Russia. So those two, those two countries were second nations in the world. England was first, those two were second. Mm. At the same time, the English were uh, spreading around the world, you know? Yeah. This kind of leads to your question about colonialism, but the most important colonialism was settling in the North America, right? Yeah. So with them, they were bringing their consciousness. And so the United States of America was also one of the second nations in the world. So nationalism spread to the United States Nationalism emerged with the American nation. So this is the only nation that is purely nationalist. It didn't have any pre-national existence. So it emerged as a nation with this kind of consciousness. Is it because of the nationalism that we had the French Revolution in the first, first place? Say it again. Would the French Revolution have happened if it wasn't because for if, if it nationalism didn't, didn't exist? Yes, yes. French Revolution was an expression of French nationalism. It was the first self-affirmation of France as a nation. Yes, it wouldn't have happened if uh, nationalism did not grow in France. The same is true about Russia. The Russian Revolution was also an expression of Russian nationalism, only it took much longer there mm. than it did uh, in France because of the different structure of society. So the English you see were carrying their consciousness naturally everywhere where they went. So when they went to India, they went there only as uh, they didn't conquer in the India like the Muslims did. They simply established their, their uh, small commercial presence. But wherever they went, they brought their consciousness. And so it is because of this English colonialism that nationalism spread to countries such as India. And that the Indians then felt, you see, yeah. they became nationalists. And so they felt that it was undignified for them not to be sovereign. 
Right. Now they didn't feel this way for a thousand years while the Muslims ruled over them. They only began feeling that way when the English brought their consciousness and they were exposed to nationalism. And the English from then on, of course, they couldn't think any other way, just like we cannot think any other way, because this was their consciousness. Right. And so they were with them, with the, English, with the British Empire, the idea of democracy was spreading all around the world. And then when France became a nation, with the French Revolution, very explicitly, they were spreading the message of nationalism. That is liberty, equality, fraternity. This is the message of nationalism. They were spreading it all around Europe and of course, immediately eliciting an anti-French nationalistic reaction understand yeah well absolutely so the yeah very, the very spread of those this consciousness by english uh, penetration all over and by french force of arms in europe led to the growth of nationalism in those places and to anti-Western, anti-colonial, national liberation feelings all right. over the world. All those feelings did not exist before. So when do we get the term kind of like, you know, pan-Arabism, like you're, you're an Arab, you feel like your country should be unified. When does the term pan, kind of, if you understand what I mean, from well, into the picture, uh, like pan-Scandinavianism, yeah. like I, if I wanted my Scandinavia into, as one country, I would be pan-Scandinavianism or well, pan-African, yeah, etc. Yeah, there was, there were parts of the world uh, that were only um, uh, very um, artificially divided uh, into administrative units uh, uh, and uh, or chiefdoms, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, the, um, at the time when nationalism was a force, already a force, so you're speaking about 19th century already, right? Yeah. So uh, at that time, the Arab world, all of it, while they had their specific chief, chieftains' families, you know, the yeah. sh sheikhs and things like that, uh, 
they were not sovereign. None of them had any sovereignty. They were under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. Yeah. The Turks, you know, are not Arabs. They're Muslims, but they're not Arabs. And they ruled for about five centuries. They ruled the Arabs. And no Arab had any problem with that. No chieftain, no sheikh. It was okay. You know, this was a feudal system, and this is how things were. And then yeah. there was the First World War and the Ottoman Empire was overturned and the English and the French brought nationalism to the Middle East. They also divided, artificially divided the Middle East into separate states that have no history, that didn't exist before. States such as Syria and Iraq and, uh, you know, all of those, Jordan, and there were no such things under the Ottomans. Right. There was, there was just know, one empire. One, one. There was just one empire. And so the nationalists, the first nationalists, intellectuals among the Arabs who were first to be exposed to national consciousness and acquire it, they at first did not know what is the subject of their consciousness. You see? Yeah. What is their nation? whether it is all the people who speak Arabic, this would be pan-Arab, understand? Yeah. Or whether it is just that particular state, Iraq, that was created yesterday by the British. Yeah. Yes. I got you. So this is how it is. In fact, the beginning of Arab nationalism was pan-Arab. They wanted at first uh, Emir Faisal, for example, was promised by the British the creation of a pan-Arab state ruled from Damascus by him. You see? So Mm -hmm. they they were pan-Arabists. But then because of the conflict between Britain and France. You see, it so happened that France got the possession of Syria and not the British who made this promise to Faisal. They didn't want Faisal in their Syria, you know? And so this, this, uh, this didn't come to be, the Pan-Arab situation. And then they started developing their specific nationalisms. But even until now, there is, it, it's not uh, very well developed national consciousness 
in that area. Now, Scandinavia, I know very little about Scandinavia, but what I know is that uh, the main... There was, a, there, were, there was a Scandinavian movement. Uh, that's kind of, kind of what I was referring to in the, in the 19th century, where people tried to unify Scandinavia, and they were pretty close, and that's what I was referring to as pan-Scandinavism. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that's what I yes. was referring to. So what I know is that Norway is a very recent creation that it was a part of Denmark. And they decide this language, they speak basically the same language. And, uh, but uh, at a certain, you know, period in the 19th century, kind of late in the 19th century, they decided to separate. Mm -hmm. The main kingdoms were Sweden and Denmark, right? Yeah, Sweden, Norway was the was the, that was the yeah. was the country, yeah, King yes. or kingdom, if you will. Yes. So uh, this is a recent development. Recent, well, this is one of the later European nationalisms, and this is all a result of the spread of the national consciousness, you know, through the European continent. A very large influence, of course, was the influence of the huge Russian empire, which was one of the second nations and uh, very nationalistic throughout the 18th and right. the 19th centuries. Uh, and with, uh, of, of course, you know, there was this influence on the, on the other northern countries. So when uh... This brings us to Germany and nationalism and Hitler. How did he embrace nationalism and how did he use nationalism in his fascist party and, and the fascist movement? Uh, the one thing that must be always remembered is that Hitler was not a fascist. This is a, a, a mistake. Hitler was a Nazi. National socialism, Nazi means national socialism. National socialism is different from fascism. Now, the thing is, as you remember, probably, there was a Soviet Nazi pact before Hitler broke it and attacked the Soviet Union. Right. And it was because of this pact that the Soviets, that is, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, USSR, right? Mm -hmm. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics did not want to use the sobriquet National Socialism when, when uh, um, Hitler attacked uh, before the pact and after the pact, you see, they yeah. didn't want to have another socialism and its enemy. So before the pact, that is because before 1939, 
they started using the term fascism in regard to German National Socialism. Right. Then the interesting thing, during the pact, they reverted back to National Socialism because now they were friends. And then when the war with the Soviet Union started, then they went back to fascism, calling the Germans fascists. So that's where it thinks that they are fascists. That's where it comes from. This is where it comes from. And from the fact that all, all the left in the West uh, took their cue from the Soviet Union. So we call them fascists, they're not fascists. Now, fasc- uh, this goes back to the types of nationalism. The thing is that the biggest, most important difference between fascism and, uh, uh, and national socialism is that fascism is not racist. Mm. Well, national socialism is a paradigmatic form of racism. And this reflects the different types of nationalism. Now, those types developed um, in this sequence. British, I mean, um, English, and then British, and then American, uh, so that English derived nationalism, the original nationalism, was defining the nation as an association of free and equal individuals. Because the source of this original nationalism was the experience of individuals. Right. So this was an individualistic nationalism. Okay? Yeah. When, um, so for example, in English and in American English, until now, the words nation and people correspond to collective pronouns. You know? Okay. Yeah. Like in the preamble to the American Declaration. Mm-hmm. Like, we the people. Yeah. When nationalism was imported into societies like France or Russia and the others who didn't have the experience of individuals underlying its importation. Yeah the concept of nation became singular. The concept of nation and the people became sing- a singular noun. 
and it referred now to the nation and the people as a collective individual. Mm -hmm. As a collective individual with its own will and its own interests, independent of the wills and interests of the human individuals who were composing it. Yeah. So it was, it developed as a collectivistic nationalism. So uh, in, uh, well, in England, Britain, the United States, all those individualistic nations, Australia, Australia, all the nations in the so-called Anglo world. Nationalism led to institutions of liberal democracy, majoritarian democracy, where the majority of individuals decided on everything, institutions that safeguarded individual rights in the first place, where nationalism developed as a collectivistic nationalism, there always was a very strong authoritarian tendency and the democracy developed institutions, democratic institutions developed as those of authoritarian democracy with a certain political elite divining the will, the general will, you know, yeah. and the interests of the nation, irrespective of what the majority of the individuals thought. So you have first individualistic nationalism and collectivistic nationalism. I, th I think you pretty much, sorry, can you go on? Now, individualistic nationalism logically defines criteria of membership in the nation, that is nationality, on a voluntaristic basis. One's national identity cannot be imposed on an individual but should be voluntarily assumed, freely chosen, and can be abandoned. So as a result, for example, anyone can become an American, a member of the nation, acquire American nationality. Right. And one can also lose American nationality. If one doesn't want to be American, here I go, goodbye, and that's it. Now, I, I, think, yeah. you, I, I think you pretty much answered this question already, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. What is, is nationalism dangerous as we, or is it mis just misunderstood? 
because of history has interpreted it the wrong way. This is a stage. Right. Uh, is nationalism misunderstood in today's society, or is it as dangerous as some people make it out to believe it is? Well, let me first finish what I am yep. telling you. So you have the type of individualistic and civic nationalism, as in the Anglo world, where nationality is equated with citizenship. You see? Mm -hmm. In collectivistic, and this is a necessary, necessary equation because it is voluntary. Membership in the nation is voluntary. But in collectivistic nationalisms, there are two possibilities. It can be voluntary, that is civic, as it developed in France, for example. Right. That is, even though France is a collectivistic nation and it, the nation is defined as a collective individual, if you really want to become French, that is, if you adore France and the French language and the French traditions, you're welcome. France is a completely civic nation. From the very beginning, it was very open. But a collectivistic nationalism can also be ethnic. Mm. That is, when membership in the nation is not, is not voluntary, but is presumed to be transmitted by blood. That is, you are either born a member of a certain nation and then you cannot lose it or you are not born a member of a certain nation and then you cannot become a member of this nation. Which right. way the collectivistic nationalism takes depends on the cultural achievements and the prestige of the community at the time when nationalism develops. So France was admired by the entire world when its nationalism was developing. They had a very uh, uh, well-developed sense of cultural superiority. Right. And they understood that everyone would want to become French. So whoever wanted, okay, they say, come on in. But countries such as Russia and Germany, when their nationalism was developing, had a deep sense of cultural inferiority. They didn't have anything to be proud of. Not their political system, 
not their language, not their culture. They didn't have literature. They didn't have, well, they didn't have anything. So how could they then become a nation and a nation with a dignity? How could they acquire a dignified national identity? Yeah. When they said, well, our virtues, you cannot see, you know, unlike mm -hmm. the French virtues, for example, which are all external, our virtues are natural. They are a reflection of our blood and soil. Yeah. And so the concept of ethnicity emerged, which is basically the concept of race. And both Russia and Germany developed collectivistic ethnic nationalism. Now, fascism is an expression of collectivistic civic nationalism because this is what both Italy and Spain developed. Those are movements of Italy and Spain. And they had a very considerable sense of cultural superiority because of their connection. Well, because of their history in general. Uh, in Italy, because of their connection to uh, the Roman Empire, that was a very big thing to be proud of. And in Did Spain, the Romans have a form of nationalism? No, they had sense? none. They had none, but of course, nationalists immediately start looking into history for the contents of their nationalism. Right. You know, they project their nationalism into history. Romans had no nationalism, absolutely none. But Italians who lived there where Rome was, you know, mm -hmm. this is how they understand themselves. So they were very superior. And uh, the same Spain, Spain was, of course, a very great power uh, for a long time before nationalism. So they also uh, didn't have any sense of inferiority, both in, uh, France, in uh, Italy and in Spain. Nationalism was collectivistic, but civic. And of course, the horror of Nazism of national socialism mm -hmm. was its racism. So it is a bad mistake to uh, confuse fascism with national socialism. Did the Nazis ruin the reputation of nationalism in a way that, that they made it a yes, bad they reputation? Did. They did, they did, they did. Yes, they did. They gave it a very bad name. So is that, why, is that why we think that nationalists, a lot of people think that nationalism immediately had to be 
if I said that I was, I'm not, not that I'm saying I am, but like if I said I was a nationalist, then they immediately think, oh, you must be a racist because you are, you are a nationalist and you are a far rightist or whatever, whatever group you belong to, but you, that is not good to say that I'm a nationalist in today's society. That's right. Exactly as you say. Now, so the answer to that is that nationalism is the very basis of democracy. And we are all nationalists because we all share national consciousness and nationalist image of reality. We are all nationalists, but it is important to remember that nationalism comes in three types, individualistic civic, collectivistic civic, and collectivistic ethnic. Mm. And it is only collectivistic ethnic, such as in Germany and in Russia, that is. Both national socialism and international socialism. Right. Only those are racist. So I want to ask you, I think, what was your view on nationalism before you started going to studying nationalism yourself? Well, uh, my view was the view of everyone else. You know? It was precisely like you, you know, you, you just described. Mm. Only at that time, one didn't speak a lot about nationalism. Because um, this was, be- you know, before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And for about 40 years after, after the Second World War, that is when when uh, Nazism gave nationalism a really bad name, nobody dealt with nationalism. Right. And it was not at all a subject of academic discussion. People didn't talk about that. But I was born in Russia. I grew up in Russia. So I came with a very different view, you know, Mm-hmm. There, Russia, for example, was divided into nations. It wasn't, I mean, uh, the Soviet Union was divided into nations and nationalities. And one's nationality was written in one's passport. It was purely a matter of biological heredity. You see? Right. One couldn't change it. And so when I arrived in the United States, I saw how very different this was. It was a great surprise to me that in the United States, nationality was not a matter of blood that it was a matter of citizenship which one could acquire and lose. Mm-hmm. So it became very interested. You know, when I saw this different, completely different conception. 
So a comparative perspective is very necessary. It is essential for the understanding of those issues. Mm. To, so, be yeah. a, to be a nationalist today is like to be a human, you know? One is a nationalist today. This is the consciousness we all share. Right. And it doesn't make one right wing. And racism is not a matter of right or left wing because, as I point to you, with the examples of national socialism in Germany and the Soviet Union, it is, it can be a characteristic of both right and left. It is just because the nationalism underlying it is of a certain type, mm -hmm. of a racist type, which is called collectivistic and ethnic nationalism. Lots of people on the left are in fact racists because the nationalism is of a collectivistic and ethnic type. Right. One can think, for example, about lots of people uh, in the United States, you know, um, who um, represent different ethnic groups or rational groups, ra racial groups, and they're racist by definition because they derive one's identity. They consider one's identity determined by blood and derive one's identity from natural heredity. Right. And many of those people would place themselves on the left and not on the right. Right. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn about nationalism today. And before we go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Any social media where people might find you if they have questions? Well, uh, they could, if they do have questions, they can um, write to me. They will find me on Google without any difficulty. So, um, and we'll they will find my books also on Google. Um, and I would welcome their, their um, reaching out to me and asking their questions. I would certainly welcome to continue the conversation with your audience. Thank you, right. Erland. Before before you go, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Please consider, if you are on iTunes, to write a little review and leave us five stars if you wish, if you really like the podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.